Hi, I'm Dev. And I'm Cam. And you're listening to Criminalish, a true crime podcast where two best friends trade stories ranging from the wild and wacky to the downright messed up. listening to the Criminalish podcast? Want to hear more from Kim and Dev? Then consider becoming a subscriber for $2.99 a month. Subscribers will have exclusive access to minisodes, Dev and Cam's live reactions to crime shows and documentaries, as well as early access to any multi-part episodes and so much more. Click the link in the show description if you're interested in subscribing. See y'all in Cell Block C. So today I will be telling Cam about the kidnapping of Sherry Papini, which took place in Redding, California on November 2nd of 2016. So this is a pretty recent case that came to a conclusion late last year. Are you familiar with this case at all, Cam? I don't think so, but it being so recent does make me think I might have heard something about it. But I'm going to let you continue because the name is not ringing any bells. Trust me, maybe it's because I've been following this case since it happened, but that name should ring a whole lot of bells if it did ring some bells for you at all. So before we continue with today's episode, I want to extend some trigger warnings. I will be talking about kidnapping, mental, physical, and sexual abuse. I will also be talking about self-mutilation and harm as well as potential eating disorders and starvation. So I know that was a lot of trigger warnings, but none of these individual elements are going to be spoken about in depth, but they are things that are vitally important to this case and will need to be mentioned. So please be sure to remember that as you continue listening to today's episode. And finally, before we get started in today's case, what are you drinking tonight, friend? So tonight I am drinking tea. I am still on my alcohol break for May. So I am drinking uh, some Tazo tea. I think this is, I needed something caffeinated because I was a little, a little sleepy earlier, but this is one of their caffeinated teas. And then I paired it with a relaxation tea from a company called Puka, P-U-K-K-A. Very delicious. What about you, friend? Very nice. A nice warm cup of tea. I am drinking Sparkling Ice, their black raspberry flavored sparkling water out of a wine glass because I'm fancy. Period. But I've been really trying to reduce my sugar intake, so I've been drinking a lot of these lately, and they're pretty good. The black raspberry is definitely my favorite flavor. So Sherry Papini was born Sherry Louise Groff. And I don't know if I'm saying her last name correctly because every source says it differently. So I'm going with Groff. I did. I have heard this story before. I don't remember the details, but I do think I know what story you're talking about now. Because when you said kidnapping, I think I was thinking she was a child. But now that you've, now that I know there is a name change, it actually is clicking. So, okay, keep going. I do think I've heard this story before. Okay, fun. 
So Sherry Papini was born Sherry Louise Groff on June 11th, 1982 in Shasta County, California to her parents, Richard and Loretta Groff. She also has a sister, but I was unable to confirm if she was the older or the younger of the two of them. So Sherry grew up in your standard middle-class white American family. And while we don't know much about her childhood, we do know that she didn't suffer any kind of abuse or neglect from her parents. And by all accounts, she lived a relatively normal life. Another important factor that we do know about Sherry's childhood is that in seventh grade, she meets her future husband, Keith Papini. He would go on to be Sherry's first kiss and her partner throughout high school. And though there was a time where the couple separated and disconnected, they would eventually get back together and marry in October of 2009 when Sherry was 27 years old. So the couple married in October of 2009 and they would go on to have two children together, a boy and a girl. And this is not related to the case at all, but I personally find it funny that reports always speak of this beautiful love story between Sherry and Keith as if they were fated to be together after meeting when they were children. However, Keith was not Sherry's first husband. Sherry married a man named David in 2006, but the relationship didn't work out. And Sherry only reconnected with Keith during her separation from David. By the end of 2006, Sherry was completely separated from David and had pretty much moved into Keith's childhood home in Mountain Gate, California, which is very, very close to Redding, where she grew up as well. So again, this information is not relevant to the case, but as you will learn as you continue to listen to this podcast is I love mess. And one of my favorite parts of true crime is the messiness of it all. Like, I don't care about serial killers. I want to know who was sleeping with who at the time of the murder. That's what I want to know. <laughs> I care about who did it, but the mess behind the why, some of the side information that's not as relevant to the case really does interest me. Like if there is an affair, you already know, I am tuned in. Volume at 100. Absolutely. I'm paying attention more to the affair. I want to know the mistress. I want to know where she lived, where she was at, how they met. I want to know all that. I don't care about the details of the murder. What was going on over here? Right. So back to the story. After having two children, Sherry took up my personal dream job and became a full-time stay-at-home mother. And Sherry's sister, friends, and family said that Sherry was an incredible mother and that her children were her life. And most of her family and friends called her, quote, Supermom. And Keith worked at Best Buy, and I'm not sure his specific role but clearly he was doing well enough to support a stay-at-home mom and their two very young children. And by most accounts, the couple seemed to have a very happy home and a healthy marriage. But there are some conflicting reports on the status of Keith and Sherry's marriage. Some say the couple seemed perfectly happy and they had almost a fairy tale like romance. However, multiple friends of Sherry have claimed that Sherry had confided into them that Keith was abusing her. Those reports seemed to focus on physical and verbal abuse, but friends never actually saw any injuries on Sherry or the children apart from a bruise that was on Sherry's arm. And even that story has conflicting events as well, because friends who were with Sherry when she sustained that injury said that she had fallen into a table 
when they were playing a game. And she told friends who were not present for that event that Keith had hit her. So, so it's definitely a little bit of a foggy situation, but I did want to bring this up because I do believe it's going to lead into a theory that I would love to discuss with you at the end of this episode. Okay. So despite these accusations, Keith and Sherry outwardly maintained a happy marriage and household leading into November of 2016. On November 2nd of 2016, Keith Papini returned home from Best Buy shortly after 5 p.m., but his wife Sherry and his two children were not home. Both the children had started daycare, and it was customary for Sherry to pick up the children at around 4.30 p.m. So this was weird because Keith had spoken to Sherry earlier that day, and she did not mention any plans for the evening or mention that she would be able to take the children somewhere or not pick them up. So Keith is kind of weirded out by this, but figures that maybe Sherry went and picked up the children before running an errand or doing something similar that would have kept them out of the house for this long. However, Keith calls the daycare to see what time Sherry picked up the children, and the daycare informed him that Sherry did not come pick up their children that day, and that they were still at the daycare when Keith called. So this is when Keith starts to panic, because remember, Sherry is super mom. There is no way she would leave her children at daycare and not pick them up. So Keith springs into action immediately. He calls his mother and asks his mother if he can pick up the children, and Keith is going to go out and look for Sherry. I think at this point, Keith was maybe thinking that she had gotten in some kind of accident or that something had had to happen to her because in his mind, there was no way that she would willingly not pick up their children. So after speaking to his mother, Keith gets in his car and starts driving around to look for Sherry. Sherry had recently picked up jogging and was training for a race scheduled for Thanksgiving week. So Keith thought she might be out on a run and started scanning the area she usually ran. He also decides to use Find My iPhone to look at Sherry's location and see if he can find where she is. And he is able to get her location, and her phone shows that she's at the intersection of Sunset Drive and Old Oregon Trail, about a mile from their home. But the weird thing about that is that her phone isn't moving and the location isn't changing. And is this a live, do we know if this is a live location or is it like location... Because sometimes, you know, it's like uh, two hours ago. It hasn't been updated in two hours or something like that. It is Find My iPhone Live location. Okay. So Keith goes to this location hoping to find his wife safe and sound, maybe in some kind of accident. However, the only thing he finds there is her iPhone with her headphones still plugged into it and some hair, which would later be confirmed to be Sherry's hair. And during my research, I remember how I felt experiencing this case in real time because I remember thinking it was weird that her phone was seemingly placed on the ground with her headphones wrapped around it and not thrown off the side of the road. Right. Also, if you're jogging and listening to music with your headphones, they're not wrapped around your phone. Correct. And that was something else I found during my research of this case again, is that a lot of people found this specific fact about her headphones wrapped around her phone and seemingly placed on the ground just to be very, very weird. Because I would think that if she were taken, somebody grabbed her, 
they would be flung. The headphones might be away from the phone somewhere, all tangled. I can't even put my headphones in my purse for two seconds without them finding a way to tangle themselves. So I don't see how you could be in the midst of being kidnapped and have your headphones stay neatly intact. But ignoring that fact, Keith is now in full-on panic mode and he's 100% convinced that something bad has happened to his wife, Sherry. So Keith calls the police on November 2nd at around 5.50 p.m. So less than an hour after he returned home from work. And Keith actually says on this 911 call that he thinks, quote, someone grabbed her, something bad has happened to her, end quote. And after this call, police began investigating Sherry's disappearance. As police began to canvass their neighborhood and ask if anybody had possibly seen Sherry get abducted, no one came forward claiming they saw Sherry's abduction, but there was an individual who claimed they saw Sherry running on Sunset Drive at 2 o'clock p.m. in a pink jacket. But this was the only lead police had to go on. Now, this case grabbed national media attention very quickly, as you can imagine when a conventionally attractive, blonde-haired, blue-eyed white woman and a mother at that suddenly goes missing. At the time of her kidnapping, Papini's disappearance was featured extensively on national news, including Good Morning America, 2020, True Crime Daily, and MSNBC, just to name a few. Essentially, the entire U.S. of A. was looking for Sherry Papini. Local, state, and federal authorities all collaborated with one another for the search of Sherry, and hundreds of volunteers set up search parties to aid in the police search. But nothing would be found in the immediate aftermath of Sherry's abduction. So, of course, police initially look at Keith as a possible suspect because, statistically, 83% of murders are carried out by the spouse or partner of the victim. But after a very short investigation, they quickly rule him out as a suspect as he has an airtight alibi of being at work all day on camera. So the police continue to investigate and look at other leads outside of Keith. And inevitably, police were able to get into Sherry's phone. And when they were able to examine some of the contents of that phone, they found text messages where Sherry was communicating with another man up in Michigan just days before her disappearance. The man was coming to visit California, and he and Sherry had made plans to meet up while he was in town. And there was definitely an air about this text that would definitely be considered way more friendly than one should be with a man when you are married, if you catch my drift. Mm-hmm, catching it. Received. So police were able to track this guy down, and they interviewed him while he was in California. And upon that interview, they determined that he was not involved in Sherry's disappearance. So while search parties and the police were out looking for any signs of Sherry, Keith was doing a full press tour and speaking to several media outlets with the hopes of putting Sherry's story out there and bringing her home. And I gotta say, if you watch some of these interviews... I will try to link them in the show description of this episode, but that's a broken man right there. That dude is heartbroken. I could imagine, not only is this your wife, it's somebody you've known since you were 11, 12 years old. 
out of nowhere, they've disappeared. You don't even have the closure of knowing if she is alive or dead, what happened to her, where she is, why she is gone. You don't know what to tell your children. You don't know to tell them mommy is in a better place or mommy is coming back. You don't know what to tell yourself. So I I could only imagine how painful that is. Yeah, I definitely feel super bad for Keith because he was just, you could feel it. He was just so devastated. And as somebody who watches a lot of interviews where later they come out, well, you'd be surprised that he actually murdered her and later did this TV interview. Uh, Chris Watts, I'm talking about you. You don't feel the emotion. You don't feel the sadness. You don't feel the brokenness of a person when they did it. You just don't. Keith, that man is broken. (laughs) That man was broken. (laughs) So Keith is on his press tour and police had actually told Keith it would be better if he not participate in all these interviews and allow for further speculation to take place on an already unknown case, this would simply just muddy the waters even further. But Keith continues to meet with media and speak about Sherry because he feels that local police have not done enough in Sherry's case. At this point, she had been missing for almost two full weeks, and they were seemingly no closer to finding her than the day they found out she was gone. And there's actual video of Keith having a conversation with local police demanding that the FBI get involved in investigating Sherry's disappearance. And this video takes place right after Keith just took and passed a polygraph test related to Sherry's disappearance. Yeah, and I, if I'm the police officer, I'm like, if this man did it, he is one crazy son of a gun. If you ask him for the FBI and you did it, you're like, no, I called the FBI in. And it comes out that you did it, I would really be looking at you crazy. I'm throwing the whole book at you because you, you ain't safe. You ain't safe. You are, you are, your permanent address is delusion. I don't know. I don't know where else, where else do you take residency other than delusion? Yeah, I'm sure he's mad too. He's like, y'all are wasting time looking at me when y'all could be using these resources to go out and find my wife. Granted, I do understand though, looking at the partner, whatever, the people closest to them, that is protocol, but It was clear to me at this point that Keith was most likely not involved in Sherry's disappearance. Exactly. And you're 100% right. He's pissed. He's annoyed. He's aggravated. He's like, I just need y'all to find my wife. And it feels like y'all aren't doing enough to try to find my wife. Again, that's my life partner. My seventh grade love. So if you're interested to see that video, I will link it in the show descriptions. The only place I was able to find it is kind of a weird guy's channel and he's got this weird cult thing about it. I think it's just a shtick. I think it's just like a a funny ha-ha thing. But his is the only one that has the full interview in like decent quality. So don't join the cult. Just watch the video and exit. (laughs) Or if you're interested, you can join the cult. No, you can't. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) I don't know what kind of code it is. Let me stop. (laughs) Don't join the cult. It's okay. So in addition to demanding that the FBI get involved with Sherry's case, 
Keith also set up a GoFundMe account to help find Sherry. And this GoFundMe account collected just under $50,000. And contributors to the GoFundMe account were told that these funds would be used to hire private investigators and just aid in additional search efforts to locate Sherry. And seemingly, Keith's efforts to bring in media coverage of his case looked like they were working. Because due to the amount of media coverage, a wealthy man came across one of Keith's interviews and was so moved by Keith's story that he offered Keith $50,000 to be used as reverse ransom money, which I found incredibly interesting because by all accounts, this was a complete stranger who did not know Keith, Sherry, or anybody related to the Papini family but they were just a kind soul who just really wanted to help them. So if you're wondering what reverse ransom is, which I had also never heard of before coming across this case, but it's essentially offering the kidnappers money for the safe return of the person they kidnapped. The kidnappers have not called and demanded a ransom for their safe return, but essentially you're bribing them in order to get your loved one returned to you. And this money was publicized as $50,000, no questions asked, as long as Sherry is returned home safely. Now, police were very against this reverse ransom idea because we don't negotiate with terrorists. And police felt like Keith and this anonymous donor might be opening the door to more trouble should they put this $50,000 on the table. Right. Because... As the police, no questions asked. Um, no, I, I have some questions. Several, actually. If they've already invested a lot of resources into finding Sherry and you have Keith and this donor kind of going off and doing their own thing, could be hindering the investigation. I think it's one thing when they're kind of working with the police, but if they're not and they're doing their own thing, it could definitely hinder the investigation as well as expose them to people who are just trying to get the money and don't actually know anything about where Sherry is or what happened to her. Correct. And it's so unfortunate, but you got to think about the grimy people in the world. You have to. So the donor insisted on staying anonymous and only providing the money. And the police felt like if they did not have a real person or a face to show in connection to this money, then the kidnappers may not believe that there's actually somebody out there who will give them $50,000 for Sherry's safe return. So while the donor was not interested in being the public face, through several connections, he found an individual whom he believed would be the perfect face to serve as the reverse ransom donator. And that is a man named Cameron Gamble. <laughs> hey, Cameron. Sorry, y'all. I mean, I'm just a Leo, so I like any type of any type of thing that's connected to me. Well, we'll see how much you like this dude in about three minutes. <laughs> oh, Lord, never mind. <laughs> so Cameron Gamble was a former pilot in the Air Force, and he worked as a captivity survival specialist, meaning he was responsible for training people and soldiers on how to handle captivity behind enemy lines. He also had experience as a hostage negotiator and had traveled around the world freeing hostages, refugees, and other victims from their captors. 
So Cameron essentially has the perfect resume to serve as the face of this reverse ransom offer. But Cameron was actually very skeptical of this whole thing. But eventually Cameron's wife convinces him that he should go through with this. And essentially she does this by saying something along the lines of, if it were me, wouldn't you want to be the one to step in and ensure my safe return home? And do we know why Cameron was skeptical? He was skeptical of the donor. He didn't believe there was actually somebody who wanted to give $50,000. And I think he was also skeptical of just the offer of reaching out to kidnappers. Because again, we don't negotiate with terrorists. I think that was the brunt of it. Yeah, that makes sense. So they go through with it. And Cameron is scheduled to be the face of this reverse ransom. But this plan almost immediately backfires because the public doesn't really see Cameron as this giving person who just wants to help. He was initially accused of only being part of the reverse ransom to promote his own business, where he, as a captivity survival expert, sold classes on how to survive captivity. He also put out this promotional video with a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman in it, and people felt like that woman looked way too much like Sherry, and it felt like a reenactment of her captivity, and that really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Mm, dang, Cameron. And finally, he was accused of being in on the plan to kidnap Sherry to pocket the $50,000. Accused by just the public? Correct. Because they said something just doesn't smell right about this Cameron fella. But Cameron denied all these allegations and nothing seemed to stick to him that could possibly show he was related to this crime in any way. So despite all the public backlash on Cameron, he, Keith, and the anonymous donor make a plan to release a video where Cameron would speak directly to the abductors, offering them $50,000 for the safe return of Sherry Papini, no questions asked. However, in this video, the kidnappers were given a deadline of 100 hours from the release of the video to return Sherry home in order to claim the money. And they thought adding this deadline would encourage the captors to move quickly and return Sherry home within the week. How long has it been since Sherry's been kidnapped? Sherry has been missing for about two and a half weeks at the time of this video's airing. So the video airs, and in the first 24 hours, no response. 48 hours, no response. 72 hours, no response. And finally, 100 hours passes without any word from Sherry's kidnappers. So because this plan fails, Keith, Cameron and the anonymous donor come up with another idea to get Sherry home. And this idea is to double the money to $100,000, and now the money would be offered as a bounty to anyone who was able to capture Sherry or her abductors. So they go through with this plan and make a second video, and that second video is released on November 23rd, 2016 which just so happened to be the day before Thanksgiving. Now remember, Sherry has been missing since November 2nd, 
So it's been over three weeks and nobody has seen or heard from her. So the following day on Thanksgiving, Keith and his family arranged a balloon release for Sherry to continue to spread awareness about her disappearance and to hold out hope that she would return home soon and safely. So on Thanksgiving Day, the Yolo County Sheriff's Office got a call from a woman who said she had seen a woman frantically flagging down cars on the interstate. The driver of the car said this woman looked incredibly scared, shaken, and visibly disheveled. So she called the police because she was concerned about the safety of whoever this woman was on the side of the road. When the Yolo County Sheriff's Office got to this location, they confirmed that this woman was Sherry Papini, alive and 150 miles south of where she had disappeared on the side of County Road 17 near Interstate 5 in Yolo County, California. Sherry was covered in blood and bruises, and she actually still had chains on her when she was found. So because of this, police immediately take Sherry to the local hospital and do a full examination of her to ensure that she is, for the most part, okay. And the police say Sherry fully cooperated with them, but she was unable to give them a lot of specific details as to what had happened to her over the last 22 days. Now, I wouldn't personally find this suspicious, as short-term memory loss of traumatic experiences can be the body's way of protecting you, because you've already had the traumatic experience, and a lot of times recalling such traumatic experiences can continue to have an adverse reaction and effect on your mental health. So in addition to the memory loss and her inability to recall the specifics of what had happened to her, Sherry also informed doctors that she had hurt her foot while attempting to flee from her captors, but upon examination and x-rays, there did not seem to be anything grossly wrong with Sherry's foot. However, Sherry was quite malnourished. She had lost 15% of her body fat and only weighed 87 pounds when she was found. And reportedly, she was 105 pounds when she first went missing. Oh my gosh. 87 pounds for a grown woman. She's 34 years old. That is scary. Yeah. That is very scary. The bridge of her nose was also broken, and she had several bruises on her face and body. And there was evidence that she got all of these bruises at different times because the bruises were all different colors meaning they were all in different stages of healing. She also had rashes and deep cuts on her wrist, ankles, and waist, and these were the areas where she had been chained up while being held captive. She previously also had really long hair, but her hair had been jaggedly chopped off into an uneven bob length. And finally, doctors discovered a brand on Sherry's right shoulder that had scabbed over and was beginning to heal. So Sherry definitely had a significant amount of injuries, but for the most part, she was physically okay and did not need much medical attention at the hospital. In the meantime, Keith had been informed that his wife had been found and that she was in a hospital in Yellow County. So he rushed his way down to come and see her. In his own words, when he got to the hospital, 
He ran back through the curtain open and saw her before breaking down into tears and running over to her, hugging her, holding her, and kissing her. And he even said he felt, quote, nauseated, end quote, just looking at her because of all the injuries she had sustained in the 22 days she had disappeared. But most importantly, on that day, after 22 days of being missing, Sherry is finally reunited with her husband and her two children. So the police are continuing their investigation, and they find two different DNA samples on Sherry. And I'm sure it goes without saying, but these samples are unknown, and they do not belong to Keith or Sherry. And while Sherry had cooperated with the officers initially to get to the hospital and had cooperated with the doctors when they were watching over her, she suddenly refused to answer any questions from law enforcement. And because law enforcement weren't getting any answers from Sherry, they gave a recording device to Keith and had Keith almost interview her in order to find out what happened, which I kind of thought was an interesting choice because I've never seen this tactic before. I've seen them bring in trauma specialists and experts and things of that nature, but never allow the partner who is not in law enforcement to carry out said interview. Now, according to Sherry, she was terrified of cooperating with law enforcement because she was told by her kidnappers that law enforcement was involved with her kidnapping. She was told that there was a cop who was going to buy her from her kidnappers and that she would never be seen again. So because she was told this and she believed it, she did not trust that law enforcement was actually there to help her, and she did not want to speak to law enforcement as a result. But with law enforcement out of the room, Sherry begins to tell Keith what happened the day she went missing. Now, according to Sherry, she was jogging down Sunset Drive, which was a common path for her to take on her jogs, when she saw an SUV drive past her before backing up towards her again. The driver of the SUV was an older Hispanic woman who asked Sherry if she could help them with some directions. Sherry then approached the vehicle to speak to the driver when the back door of the SUV flung open and there was another younger Hispanic woman pointing a gun at her. And she was told that they didn't want to kill her, but she needed to get into the SUV and come with them. So Sherry places her phone and her headphones on the ground and gets into the vehicle without objection. Something is then placed on her head so that she does not know where she was going. And Sherry says she believes that she was tased before eventually falling asleep or passing out on this long drive to wherever they were going. Eventually, the two women and Sherry pulled up to an unknown location, and Sherry was chained and held captive inside that location for 22 days. And Sherry said she was tortured every single day she was held captive. She said she was beaten, she was starved, and she was also branded. And the brand was specifically requested by the law enforcement officer who was going to buy Sherry, essentially physically marking her as his property. Sherry continued by saying that she was held somewhere that was very dark 
cold and dirty. And the main thing she remembered hearing was, quote, really annoying Mexican music, end quote. Side-eye. Just side-eye. Hard side-eye. And so while she's saying this, does she know that Keith is recording her? I do not know. But she is saying this to Keith, not the officers. Correct. There would be a later interview where Sherry would talk to law enforcement officers with Keith present. And some of this information is from that second interview, but the second interview is the more formal interview. The first one was just kind of the more like a victim statement rather than an interview. Sherry also said they would play the TV very loudly where she could hear it, but she believed there must have been a fireplace wherever she was being held because she smelled smoke constantly. She was given very little food during her captivity, and she said they would occasionally give her some rice, maybe a tortilla, and an apple, and that is all she would eat for the day. Now, despite everything that was going on, Sherry's number one priority was still her children and wanting to return home to her children. And she actually told Keith a story where she had wrapped up some cloth to mimic a swaddling baby and rocked it seemingly to simulate rocking one of her children to sleep. And Keith talks about this in an interview and you can feel how torn up he is about this. And he says, quote, she's so strong, end quote, as he's on the verge of tears. Man can't even look up in the camera to say it to the camera. He's looking down at the ground to attempt to not let the tears roll. So after collecting all this evidence and getting a rough idea of what had happened to Sherry, police are now wanting to know how she escaped. So according to Sherry, the day she escaped, her captors had been fighting. Seemingly over her. Sherry said her captors mostly spoke in Spanish in the house. And since Sherry did not speak much Spanish, she did not fully understand what they were saying. But she could grasp enough words to figure out that it was probably about her. But during this argument, Sherry says she hears a gunshot. And a few hours later, in the middle of the night, the younger Hispanic woman comes down to get Sherry places a bag on her head, and puts her back into the SUV that she was originally kidnapped in. Sherry is unable to say how long they were in the SUV driving, as she was very weak, very malnourished, and very disoriented when the drive took place. And Sherry also said she may have even fallen asleep during this drive just due to the exhaustion of her captivity. But eventually, the woman stops the car and tells Sherry to get out. Sherry gets out of the car with the bag still on her head, and the woman flees the scene. After Sherry heard the car speed away, she removes the bag from her head and starts running, looking for somebody who can help her. And this is how she ended up on the side of the highway where that woman reportedly found her and called 911. Now, everything I've just told you is directly released from the police and Sherry has never done interviews or talked about her abduction or the torture that took place while she was being held captive. So all the previous statements have been released by law enforcement or Keith, Sherry's husband. 
And since this initial hospital interview, Sherry has conducted interviews with law enforcement explaining what she can remember from her kidnapping. And again, all those videos are public and I will be sure to link them in the show description if you would like to go watch Sherry's interviews. Again, I could only find them from this one source. Please don't join the cult. I am not held responsible. I do not endorse him. He just has quality interrogation videos. You're going to make people curious about what this cult is. It's a true crime cult. Maybe it's not that bad. I don't know. (laughs) His intro weirded me out, so I just skipped past it. I don't even know what he said. (laughs) I'm dead. Look, but his the interrogation was in 4K, Cam. I had to watch it. Listen, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not blaming you, but I, I'm curious about what the coat is. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna watch the full intro just to see. You have fun with that. But again, Sherry was not fully cooperative with the police in the immediate aftermath of her kidnapping. But a year later, Sherry spoke with a forensic sketch artist and provided descriptions of her two captors and cam i'm going to send you the final sketches that sherry helped put together for the police okay so this really doesn't tell us much as the sketches have both of the women in the sketches have masks on so you can really only see their eyes eyebrows hair and the bridges of their noses so sherry described the younger Hispanic woman to be 20 to 30 years old with dark curly hair, thin eyebrows, and was about 5'5 with a medium build. She described the older Hispanic woman as 40 to 50 years old with dark, long, straight hair and thick eyebrows, and that she was about 5'7. She said they both wore a mask anytime she saw them, but Sherry also had a bag on her head the majority of the time she was held captive. So the FBI actually put out a $10,000 reward for anyone who provided information that would lead to the arrest of Sherry's captors. However, despite hundreds of tips, no leads would identify these two women. So now we're about to transition into the next phase of this case, but I want to take a moment and see what are your thoughts so far, Cam? I think this this whole story is very interesting. Of course, she she went through something. She has been through something. She has bruises, um, marks showing that she's been chained up. Obviously, she lost 15 pounds. Honestly, the fact that she was found alive after 22 days of captivity is very rare, I feel like. And I also find it interesting that the younger Hispanic woman that kidnapped her did not try to recoup that a hundred grand in any type of way. Because now we don't really understand why was she let go? If not for the money, why was she let go? Definitely agree with you. It's definitely very weird. Very, very weird. Now, when this case happened in 2016, something about this case was just not passing the smell test for a lot of people. Something just felt off. Law enforcement also felt like something just wasn't sitting right about this story, but they couldn't quite put their finger on what. But in 2017, some pieces of the puzzle 
began to fall in place in a way that I feel most people didn't expect. In 2017, the Sacramento Bee released an article on Sherry, and in this article, they highlighted some of Sherry's previous transgressions that didn't really paint her in the best light. First, the article spoke of an incident in 2000 where presumably Sherry is 18 and she broke into her sister's home through her back door. And it continued by stating that the day Sherry is believed to have broken into her sister's home, she vandalized her own home where she was staying with her parents. In 2003, when Sherry was 21 years old, her father reported an unauthorized bank withdrawal for an undisclosed amount, and he believed that Sherry was attempting to steal money from him. And finally, Sherry's mother called the police in December of 2003 and reported that Sherry had been hurting herself and had threatened her mother by saying that she would report her mother for the injuries that Sherry had done to herself. So after this article was released, many people were giving Sherry the hard side eye. And a law enforcement expert and criminology professor with over 25 years of experience at the time publicly stated that he was extremely skeptical of Sherry's story and found it, quote, highly unlikely, end quote, that the perpetrators would be two women in a kidnapping and torture case, considering that more often than not, these cases are perpetrated by men. And he said it was unlikely to have happened the way that Sherry said it did. Yeah, I will say one thing. You know, I'm I'm sure that the Sacramento Bee highlighted these things because they were skeptical of a lot of the facts in her case. That is not to say that people who have a history of lying, because it does sound like some of the things that she was doing were representative of a mental health issue. Correct. That's not to say that people who consistently lie due to a mental health issue cannot go through something traumatic like this. But I do think that in Sherry's case, it was not only the fact that she had this history, but the fact that her current case just did not make sense to a lot of people. Definitely agree with you. And another part of this that I definitely think added to the controversy and the outrage at the time is that back in 2016, we were finally starting to see the fruits of the labor of the Me Too movement and a wave of people who were finally believing women. And when many of these specifically male experts came out to say that they did not believe Sherry, there was a lot of tension and disagreement with that. But then something major happened And I believe it was the beginning of a big shift in public opinion about Miss Sherry Papini's case. So some individuals on Reddit and a couple of other anonymous posting websites found an old blog post written under Sherry Papini's maiden name on a white supremacist website. Side eye. Side eye. This post was not only written under Sherry's maiden name, of Sherry Groff, but it also went in depth about her hometown. Before writing, quote, a bizarre and racist post detailing how they got into violent physical fights 
with Latinos during high school, end quote. This post was posted on a now defunct website called skinheads.com. That's skinheads with a Z. I'm just saying Keith ain't know if his wife was a white supremacist. I'm not saying Keith was a white supremacist, but it's hard to be married to a white supremacist without knowing they're a white supremacist. It also doesn't look great for you when you look back at their prom pictures and they're both wearing all white. So Keith should have known about these violent fights she got in with these Hispanic people. Mm-hmm. And this post is no longer available, but it contained many racist remarks and slurs against Latino and Hispanic people. The author of this post claimed, quote, she was targeted by Hispanic people in her high school because she was drug-free, white, and proud of her blood and heritage, end quote. I guarantee you it was the last part, and it was because her being proud of her blood and heritage was her being a white supremacist. Oh, absolutely. The only people I know who use language of proud of their blood and heritage are white supremacists. Don't nobody who is not a white supremacist say, I'm so proud of my blood and heritage. Now, of course, law enforcement found this. And Sherry told the sheriff's office that she believed someone else wrote the post using her name and that she had hired an attorney to try to get the post removed. Her friends and family have also said that this post was written by somebody else. Who just also figured out a way to make it seem like it was posted years ago. Not saying that's impossible, but highly improbable in my opinion. Exactly. And at the time, I remember when this went viral on Reddit, it wasn't like somebody just had a screenshot of this letter. It was linked You could go see the post. It was live and linked. So the holes in Sherry's story are very much holding for her right now. And police have a lot of questions and they are continuing to investigate all of Sherry's statements. The police did not put out any statement when Sherry was found, nor did they offer any kind of motive as to why this kidnapping took place. But in the background, police found one piece of evidence that seemingly put the final nail in Sherry's coffin. Remember when Sherry was taken to the hospital the day she was found? Police realized that Sherry had two different unknown DNA on her, one being from a woman and another being from a man. And Sherry never mentioned a man in any of her events or statements she told to police. So of course, police are now wondering, where did this male DNA come from? So they run the DNA through the database, and they didn't come up with an exact match at first. But eventually, they come up with a familial match. And if you're unfamiliar with familial matches, they just mean that there is enough DNA to say that this DNA comes from the same bloodline or family as the other person's DNA. So this family member's DNA was similar to the DNA found on Sherry, And after just a little bit of digging, the police find a Mr. James Reyes, who was not only related to this family member, but also was the ex-boyfriend of Sherry Papini. So Sherry and James met at a Friday Night Live youth program in 2001. 
and they dated in 2006. Right around the time Sherry was rekindling with Keith. Y'all can't see Cam's face that she's drawing these hieroglyphics <laughs> right now, but imagine the meme. I'm trying to I'm trying to see how everything this don't add up. I'm I'm putting two and two together and I'm getting six. So obviously I'm missing something. You and Sherry too. So it does 2006, she got married, divorced, rekindled with her middle school, high school love, and also rekindled with Mr. Jamie. Is that his name? Is that his name? James. And also rekindled with Mr. James. I would have been tired out that year. Sheesh. Miss Man was booked and busy. So initially, the police did not have James' DNA. They just had the connection that he was a former partner of Sherry Papini. So the police did not initially tell James that he was a suspect, nor did they go to his door with a warrant to request his DNA. Instead, they did my favorite thing, where they dug through his trash. Which, remember, once you throw away anything, it is public domain, and the police are allowed to dig through all of your trash and all of your garbage because it is no longer private property once you throw it away. So they go through James' trash and they got his DNA from an honest honey tea bottle and his DNA was a match for the DNA found on Sherry. So on August 10th of 2020, so nearly four years after Sherry initially went missing, James was brought to the sheriff's office for questioning. And he spilled every can of beans he could find. He stated that on November 2nd, he had rented a car and drove to the spot where Sherry claimed she was abducted. He stated that Sherry told him that Keith was sexually assaulting and abusing her and that she needed to escape their home. So when he pulled up on Sunset Drive, Sherry placed her phone on the ground and crawled into the back seat of the rental car. She then laid on the floor the entire journey back to his home in Costa Mesa almost nine hours from Keith's childhood home in Mountain Gate, California. She stayed at James' home the entire three weeks while she was missing. And most importantly, James informs police that he helped Sherry harm herself. I will say one thing about Miss Sherry. She was committed to the bit. Don't half-ass it. She was committed. She did not... She did not half-ass this one. She was committed. I mean, if you're going to do it, do it big, right? Yep. According to James, Sherry had found out about the entire nation looking for her. And she needed to make her story believable for when she inevitably went back home. And she asked him to harm her. Now, he claims that the majority of Sherry's injuries were self-inflicted but there were some injuries that he helped her create. Now, he claims he never hit her with his hands, but instead did things like hit a hockey puck off of her body to create bruises all over her body. Which, if you've never been hit with a hockey puck before, that mess hurts, and it hurts bad. I don't ever want to find out what that feels like. That is, that is very wild. That she chose that method to create all of those bruises. I think that method was chosen and just 
based on what James has said, because James wasn't willing to hit her. Yeah. He was not willing to physically with his own body hit her. And James is a larger stature man. And I'm sure also ignoring his morals that wouldn't let him do it. He probably felt like he would have broken this woman in half had he actually tried to hit her. Right. In addition to the incidents with the hockey pucks, James claimed that Sherry asked him to board up all the windows in his house so that there would be no sunlight coming in. And he claimed that she starved herself to lose all the weight that she lost when she had come home. And again, he stated that she beat herself daily. James also went on to describe Sherry as an attention-hungry person who would make up grandiose stories to always be the center of attention. And another hilarious part of this story is that law enforcement actually contacted the leader of the youth group where Sherry and James met. And this leader confirmed that Sherry was, quote, extremely problematic, end quote, and would constantly make up stories and lie for attention. Which I found hilarious because, again, I love mess, and you're really going to tell me that you contacted her youth leader from 20 years ago to confirm that she had allegedly always been a liar. And the fact that the youth leader remembered from 20 years ago that this woman was messy? That's how you know she stayed with the problems. Absolutely. Because that stuck with them. They they said, Sherry? Oh, yeah, she's crying. <laughs> yeah, I remember her. Keep me up at night. All her lying. <laughs> All her lying and her nonsense. So the interview continues, and James tells investigators that he and Sherry communicated solely through prepaid cell phones, and they were able to confirm this when James turns over one of those prepaid phones. And they were able to triangulate the locations approximately at his residence and approximately at Sherry's residence. These records also show that James made the nine-hour road trip to Redding, California, just like he said. But most importantly, the cell phone records confirmed that the two had been in communication the morning Sherry disappeared. James' cousin would also be interviewed. This was the person with the familial match. And he claimed that he saw Sherry at James' house twice during the time where she was missing. So the interview continues. And the final piece of information that James tells investigators really just curdles my stomach a little bit. Because in this interview, James tells investigators that he was the one who branded Sherry. And apparently they went to Hobby Lobby and bought a wood-burning kit and used this wood-burning kit to brand Sherry on her right shoulder. And we've talked about my art background a little bit on this podcast, and I have used this exact same wood-burning kit for art projects. It is a very standard beginner-friendly kit for wood-burning, and it's very cheap. It's only like $15.00. But the bit about this that curdles my stomach is I have accidentally burned myself with that wood burning tool. I still have a scar on my arm because of it. 
And I did that back in high school. And I vividly remember how much it hurt and how my skin smelled as it burned. And I couldn't imagine just how painful this would be to brand a whole word on your right shoulder, seemingly by choice. She had branded a word? Yes. And to this day, I do not know what the brand said. It has not been released, but it was a word. I get committing to the bit, but you couldn't have chosen like a symbol or something. Like, damn. Yeah, dude. And again, like the smell of your own burning flesh is a very visceral memory. Again, I have a small burn on my arm and I vividly remember what it smelled like when my seemingly when my skin caught on fire from this tool. So James is telling all this to police and we finally get his versions of events on Thanksgiving Day when Sherry miraculously reappears. James says on Thanksgiving, he got a friend to rent him a car and he drove that rental car back towards Redding, California, where she told him to stop at a random intersection. She ran out of the back seat of the car and she didn't even give him a goodbye as she ran off. He then turned around in his car and drove back to his home before returning the rental car. And police were able to track down this vehicle and the odometer matches James' story. So now the police are asking James, why didn't he report Sherry after she did all this? And James just calmly says that if the truth ever came out, he was sure that the police would inevitably find him and he would fully cooperate with them, which I guess is exactly what happened. So while the police have James' version of events, they're actually not fully ready to agree with him and say that Sherry is lying about her abduction. So the police do a little more digging and they find a lot more compelling evidence. First, they find that James took off work the 1st and 2nd of November, which was not part of his normal work schedule. Police also got a warrant to look through James' home, where he claimed Sherry had been held. And when they got there, they realized the descriptions that Sherry gave of the room she was held in were very similar to one of the rooms in James' home. And the layout of his home matched descriptions Sherry gave about where she believed her captors were in relation to herself. And lastly, Sherry had a private Pinterest board called Gift Ideas. But the only thing on this board were wood-burning tools, similar to the wood-burning tool allegedly used to brand her right shoulder. And finally, James sat down for a polygraph test and passed with flying colors. And again, while I don't personally give a lot of weight to polygraph tests, the police use this as the driving force to have a second interview with Sherry and Keith. Putting it on the Pinterest board is wild. Just reckless. You could have at least screenshotted the, the wood burning kit if it was just one thing. Mm, okay, but whatever. Nah. Dumb criminals make it easier for us to catch them. Correct. 
But also a piece of this that I'm dying to know is how long ago did she make that Pinterest board? How long has she been planning this? Exactly. Because it's giving a lot of premeditation. So in late August 2020, FBI agents and local Shasta County law enforcement officers called in Sherry and Keith Papini for a second formal interview in relation to Sherry's kidnapping. Sherry and Keith are both unaware that the police have spoken to James and that he had already outed the entire hoax. So they go into this interview expecting for an update in Sherry's case. However, in this interview, police confront Sherry with the information that they have collected from James. And I have watched this entire interview. Again, it will be linked. Again, do not join the cult. And it is a work of interrogation beauty. It is a little bit long. It's like an hour and a half. Though I don't like to diagnose people because I am not qualified, I do think this interrogation tells me a lot about the psychology of Sherry Papini. And I'll leave it at that. Because I also want you guys to watch this interrogation and find your own conclusions from it. So the first thing police do when they get into this interview is remind Sherry that it is illegal to lie to federal agents and that it is okay if she doesn't remember things, but she just needs to be 100% honest about them. And she agrees and continues with the interview. They begin by asking her about her abductors, and they actually pulled out a couple of photo grids to see if Sherry recognized any of the women in those photo grids. And Sherry kind of looks at the pictures, but she doesn't pick anyone out of this lineup. Apart from her saying one of the pictures of the women was, quote, calling to her, end quote. So then police start showing Sherry pictures of James' home and asking her if these pictures still align with the descriptions she had previously given police. And Sherry immediately starts backtracking and saying, this part looks similar, but that part's not quite right, and I just can't be 100% sure because it was so long ago. But you know, I know, and the officers know that this is the exact room Sherry had described. And now Sherry knows... They found the place. And if they found the place, they found James. Okay. Ooh, if I was Sherry, I'd be, I'd be scared. If I was Sherry, I would have left. This isn't an interrogation. I'm allowed to leave. But Keith is next to her. Babe, we don't have to talk about this in the car, but we gotta go. As a liar, she's committed, though. She's committed. My behind would have left. But again, I also know my rights and know that I'm not required to talk to the police. Not required to do that. Right. But I'm sure she thinks she can finesse her way out of this somehow. Exactly. So Sherry is finally starting to feel the pressure as the police continue showing her these images before they finally say, we found the house where you were held and we also found who lives there. When the police say this, Keith is still in the room and this interview is available on YouTube. Go watch it, because when Keith hears that the police know where Sherry was held and they found the person who lives there, he starts fist pumping in excitement and rubbing his palms together because he's so ready to find out who did this to his wife. 
The sheriff over there trembling. Scared. Scared. Horrified. Your husband over there excited. He's like, we got him. His whole body language, we got him. So while Keith is over here excited and ready to go, Sherry's body language goes into full-on panic mode. And the investigators tell Sherry that they know what happened, that they know what's going on, and if she would rather Keith not be in the room, she can ask him to leave. She's very hesitant. She's very flip-flopping. And ask Keith if he would like to be in the room, seemingly like she doesn't know what the police are talking about and what they're about to say. And of course, Keith is like, of course I want to be in this room. We're about to find out who did this to you, and I want to know who did it. And the officers actually leave the room to allow Sherry and Keith to speak in private, even though there are cameras and microphones in the room. So, of course, we all know what their conversation was. And Sherry tells Keith that she doesn't want the younger woman who abducted her to be found because it is because of that younger woman that she gets to see her children every day. And when Keith kind of pushes back on this and is like, great, but she still committed a crime, she just bluntly says, you're not listening to me. I don't want to press charges. I don't want her to be found. I just want to move on. And it is cold. The way she says it, cold. So after this brief conversation, the police come back into the room and Keith doesn't leave. Again, Sherry tells the officers that she doesn't want this woman to be found because this woman is responsible for her returning home to her family and her children. And the police come right out and say, that they won't find this woman and Sherry knows they won't find this woman because this woman doesn't exist. They also tell her that they found James, that James had told them everything and now they wanted an explanation from Sherry. They told her that the male DNA on her matched James, that the photographs from the house where she was held was James' house and in response to this, Sherry begins crying and saying, just tell me who she is. I know you know who she is. Like I said, committed to the bit. Lord, I would hate to be married to her. Gaslight Central. Gaslight gatekeep girl boss <laughs> is Miss Sherry Papini. If I were the police, I would honestly be flabbergasted. Because the denial, the delusion. Right, like I would have thought after they said James's name, she would have been like, okay, okay, you got me. But nah, she's keeping it going. Oh, and it gets better, boo. It gets so much better. So she's denying everything the police are saying and seemingly trying to use crying and hysteria to get out of the situation that she's put herself in. And mind you, Keith is still in the interrogation room. And at one point during the interview, he actually slid his chair away from her once they started saying that she ran off with her ex-boyfriend. And Keith's body language is livid. Rightfully so, in my opinion. He's sitting there with his arms and legs crossed, not saying a word. And as more information comes out from the police, Sherry turns to Keith and tells him that she thinks they need to get a lawyer because this isn't making any sense. Baby girl, who's they? You need a lawyer. 
you need a defense attorney and I need a divorce lawyer quickly. So eventually investigators ask Keith to leave the room because they feel like they will be able to get more information out of Sherry without him present. And when he leaves the room, Sherry admits to talking to James. She also admits to talking to the previously discussed man up in Michigan, but she continues to deny that she faked her kidnapping and even tells investigators that, quote, you're saying it's James. You're saying it's James. It just can't be James. He loved me, end quote. Again, she's still acting as if we all don't know what's going on. And by the way, the only thing she admits to during this interrogation is talking to other men outside of her marriage and that she was so stupid for talking to other guys. Though adultery says a lot about you as a person, last time I checked, it is not illegal. Right. So if the only thing they had on you was the fact that you had stepped out on your marriage... I don't think that you would be in an interrogation room. You know, I just, I have a feeling that probably not. Right. It can't be James. It can't be James, but you gave a description of two women. You would have at least been able to see the top of his face. It can't be James, but the DNA is saying it's James. The fact that we found evidence that you were held in James's house is saying it's James, but you're saying it can't be James. So it must not be James. Can't be James. What do you mean? Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes and all that lying evidence? So since the police aren't getting anywhere with Sherry, they decide to end the interview. And at the end of the interview, they ask her if she wants to harm herself or others. Because unfortunately, it is a reality that people will unfortunately harm themselves or others in some cases. If they believe that the walls are closing in on them. And... Sherry has a very interesting response to me where she says, no, I'm not on welfare. What is wrong with this woman? Now I will say this is one part of the audio that is very, very weird feeling. She's crying and she has her hands in her face. So it comes out really weird. And it might be because I personally believe that Sherry's racist, that she feels the need to say, I'm not on welfare. Like being on welfare means you want to harm yourself and or others. It was just really freaking weird. Again, that's not necessarily relevant to the case. It just rubbed me the wrong way. Everything about her has rubbed me the wrong way. Because what does being on welfare, like they're asking you that not because you're on welfare, but because you just got caught scheming the whole country about your disappearance. Correct. The whole country and your family. Correct. And the police... About a three-week disappearance. Exactly. So they send Sherry out of the room. But before they leave, Keith actually comes back into that same room with those investigators. And Keith is basically like, I don't want to be around her. And I don't want her around my kids. So I don't know what to do. I just can't be around her right now. And he's asking the officers what he should do about this. And I also thought this was funny because the officers were basically like, that's your wife, buddy. Go do with that what you will. Dang. It would be one thing if he knew about this, but but Keith didn't know anything. I mean, I will say I don't see how he didn't know about the racist and 
classist parts of her, but he didn't know anything about the fake kidnapping plot. As far as we know, but unfortunately, Keith is going to engage in some suspicious acts very soon. So when the interview concludes, the police have enough evidence to be sure that Sherry lied to them and made false statements to federal officers, which again is illegal and is a felony and can get you up to five years in federal prison. But this is not the only crime that Sherry had committed. Remember the GoFundMe account that was set up for Sherry when she first went missing? The public was told that the funds collected by this GoFundMe would go directly to funding search parties and other outside help necessary to find Sherry. And this GoFundMe had raised nearly $50,000. And two weeks after Sherry returned home, Keith wrote a check for $31,808 from the GoFundMe account to himself and deposited it in his personal bank account. He also wrote a second check for $1,160 from the GoFundMe account to Sherry, and it was deposited into Sherry's personal bank account. One week later, on December 13th, 2016, Keith used $8,202 from the GoFundMe account to pay off some of his personal credit card debt, and Sherry did the same thing using $3,053 of the money collected in the GoFundMe account to pay off her personal credit card debt. And the remaining money was discovered to have been used for personal expenses by the Papini family. And this is so gross to me that you would use people's donations to pay off your debt and your personal expenses when people gave you this money because they were concerned about your missing wife. And I feel like if, even if you didn't use all the money, you're like, okay, my wife was found. We can return all of the unused money. Or donate it donate it to foundations that are still trying to search for missing people. There's so many foundations like that. Correct. But Cam, this is not the only fraud Sherry committed. Oh, nay, nay. Sherry also applied to the California Victim Compensation Board for Financial Assistance. The California Victim Compensation Board is an organization that provides financial help to victims of violent crimes, and as many victims will have some form of financial hardship post the crime being committed. And she used her story of being kidnapped, which she knew full well was fake, to receive payments from this organization. Between 2017 and 2021, Sherry received roughly 35 payments, approximating over $30,000 that Sherry had stolen from this organization. And that is just the money that was directly paid out to her. If we include the GoFundMe money, the payout money, the manpower of not only looking for her, but investigating the case... Sherry Papini cost the state of California upwards of $230,000. That is so ridiculous. And that's some money that could have been used. There's so many issues in California and so many people who need support. And that money could have been used in so many other ways, so many other positive 
ways. It really is a shame that she took all of that. So the police continue to keep an eye on Sherry while building their case against her. And on March 3rd of 2022, Sherry was arrested outside of the facility where her children go for piano lessons. And according to the prosecution, police had followed Sherry from her home to this facility. And after Sherry had dropped off her children, they told Sherry that her car had been involved in some kind of accident. And they used this as a ruse to get her away from her children so that her children would not see her be put in handcuffs and arrested as that can be an extremely traumatizing thing for a child to witness. However, when the police got Sherry outside of the building, they told her that she was under arrest, and reportedly, Sherry attempted to run and resisted arrest. It has also been reported that she was yelling and screaming the entire time, and she threw her phone approximately 20 feet from where the officers were attempting to arrest her. Sherry was being charged with staging her abduction, lying to federal agents, and committing mail fraud in the amount of $30,000. The mail fraud is essentially because the checks from the organization were coming in the mail. And because Sherry was putting up such a fight and screaming with officers, her children actually left the facility and unfortunately witnessed their mother be handcuffed and arrested, which is exactly what the officers didn't want. And of course, a spokesperson for the family stated that the family was very unhappy with the way the police handled Sherry's arrest and claimed they swarmed on her in front of her children. And if they had simply asked Sherry to come turn herself in, she would have come to the police station with no fight. BFFR. BFFR. But also, why do you think you're so special that you don't get to be arrested like everybody else? Why do you deserve special treatment? It's because she's not on welfare. Clearly. The hell is wrong with me. I forgot she's not on welfare. This lady is unbelievable. Truly unmatched. Sharon level clownery for sure. Mm, Yes. Honestly, surpassing Sharon. I agree. So despite how much money Sherry is accused of stealing and all the circumstances surrounding her case, she is granted bail and her bond is set at $120,000. And in order to be bond out, she would need to surrender her passport to authorities, agree to not leave the state of California for any reason, surrender all firearms and weapons from their home, not consume any drugs or alcohol, and undergo a psychiatric evaluation program. And she managed to post bail with the help of her husband and her parents on March 9th of 2022. And yes, you heard me correctly. Keith is still standing by her side, despite all the evidence that is coming forward. Side eye. Keith, we trusted you. You were the chosen one. Now, many people were outraged about the fact that Sherry had the opportunity to have bail as they believed she was a flight risk, including the prosecuting attorney. But the judge chose to give her bail anyway. And if convicted, Sherry was facing up to 20 years in prison and a $500,000 fine for the mail fraud, as well as lying to federal agents. 
So initially, it looks like Sherry is preparing to go to trial. And she continues with her statement that everything she said is real and it happened. However, six weeks after her arrest, on April 18th, 2022, Sherry Papini signed a plea deal admitting that she had orchestrated the hoax of her abduction and had lied to the police. So she pled guilty in April, and in September of 2022, she was sentenced to 18 months in federal prison and fined $300,000 for the fraud. During her statement to the court on her September 19th hearing, she said, quote, I am guilty of lying. I am guilty of dishonor. I stand before you willing to accept, to repent, and to concede. What was done cannot be undone. End quote. On April 20th of 2022, Keith files for a divorce and asks for sole custody of him and Sherry's two children, claiming that Sherry's actions had traumatized their children and that made her an unfit mother. Following Sherry's sentence, Lifetime produced a television film in 2023 called Hoax, The Kidnapping of Sherry Papini, with Jamie King playing Sherry Papini. And I didn't get a chance to watch this movie before today's episode, but Cam and I do have plans to watch this movie with our subscribers. So if you would like to see our live reactions to this movie, consider becoming a subscriber to the podcast. And that is the end of our story, friend. What are you feeling right now? I am feeling like she got away with too much. And I think the fact that she was a blonde white woman helped in that fact. Absolutely. One of the things me and another friend were talking about is how this case reeks of white privilege. Because for some reason, you thought you conventionally attractive, pretty, blonde, blue-eyed white woman would not be plastered all over the U.S. of A. For a kidnapping in broad daylight, no less, in a quiet neighborhood, you really thought that people weren't going to care about you? And I, I don't know, I've, I have many thoughts, too. Just also considering how many resources were put into this, sadly, we know that cases involving women of color do not get the same amount of attention. So it's sad not only to know that so many resources went into this case, but resources were likely diverted away from real cases involving other women, specifically women of color, who might have been missing or had something done to them. Two things I am curious on. First, did they ever discover who the other unknown female DNA was? I do not believe so. I was not able to find anything about the female DNA in my research. Everybody kind of focused on the male DNA since it was the nail in the coffin, you know? Yeah. I'd be curious to know where that came from. And then two, James, you said his last name was Reyes or Reyes? Reyes. That sounds like a Hispanic last name to me. So I do know there, of course, there are, there are white Latinos, but 
I am curious. She was talking all this smack about these Hispanic women. Was James not side her? I will say to me, James is looking spicy white. He very much looks like he's white in something else. Like, he, it feels like his mother was white, but his father was half something else. You know? Looking at these photos that I just put up on Google with his beard shaven and his hair cut like it is and this older picture, he definitely looks white or white passing. But like you were saying earlier, this case really highlighted for me just how much people go out of their way when a conventionally attractive, I will say specifically conventionally attractive blonde white women are highlighted more than anybody. It is ridiculous just how blatantly these stories are not covered when you are a woman of color. Like, I remember having a conversation with my mom, and at the time, there was a woman going missing in Nevada every single day. But because they were all either women of color or Native American women or Hispanic women or Latino women, nobody did anything. Nobody cared. But a white mother of two goes missing and the whole world has to stop. Right. Everybody hears about it. And I think, too, the scary part is that people, the people that want to harm women are aware of this fact. People currently think that there are multiple serial killers operating in and around Chicago that have not been caught, specifically because they are targeting women of color who are usually sex workers And they know that those people are so low on the priority list of law enforcement that they're not going to put resources in into figuring out who is doing these crimes, who is harming these women. Exactly. I mean, if we want to talk about the primal example of that, Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer was well aware that if he targeted black gay men, he would never be caught. He was well aware of it. And you guys allowed him to go on and murder so many young black men because nobody gave a damn about them. And it's sad and it disgusts me that you allow that thinking to happen in the 80s and also happen in 2023. Have we learned nothing? Have we not learned that every life is valuable? I don't care if you are a sex worker. I don't care if you abuse drugs. I don't care if you're the richest person on the planet everybody's life is important and for you to have priority list of who needs to be found and who deserves justice is disgusting if you're interested in becoming a subscriber click the link in the description and dev and i will see you in cell block c any other thoughts friend no i think that's it for me thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode I'd like to also thank Emily D. Baker, Kendall Ray, and the United States Attorney's Office of the Eastern District of California for providing most of the material for this episode. If you'd like to check out photos related to this case, follow us on Instagram at Criminal-ish Podcast. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode. Feel free to leave us a comment and be sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening to the Criminal-ish Podcast. If you are listening to us on Spotify, please leave us any comments or questions. Stay nosy, my friends, and we look forward to talking to you all in our next episode. Bye. Bye.